6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The End Times. Well, we are in hour 21 of Learning the Bible in 24 Hours. And in this particular hour, we've set this hour aside to summarize eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. Now, we haven't tried to segment other aspects of the theological side of biblical studies. However, the field of eschatology deserves some special mention for two reasons. First of all, the study of eschatology will test your hermeneutics. Your hermeneutics is your theory of interpretation. Some people have a very strict hermeneutic, that is, they have a very high view of the Scripture, they take it very literally. Others take it very softly, they're willing to allegorize and take things a little softer. Depending on your attitudes about that, that'll determine where you come out on some of these controversial areas. And the second reason eschatology is so important is not, not just because it's controversial, but because there seems to be a widespread belief among many of us that we're being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in history. And so eschatology is no longer academic, it's very practical. Now, if you take the classical divisions of uh, theology, even different seminaries pretty much categorize theology in these partitions, if you will. The study of the Bible itself, they call bibliology. The attributes of God, that's theology proper. The uh, study of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself is called Christology. The study of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. Angelology covers that field, not just regular angels, but fallen angels, demons, all of that falls into that category. Anthropology is their term for the study of man. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. And I think many of the controversies in eschatology really are issues of ecclesiology. Many people are confused because they don't really understand what the church is. And of course the last, which is the one we're going to try to summarize in this hour, eschatology, the end times, the last things. So there are two reasons at least that we want to study eschatology. It's the final test of your hermeneutics, your theory of uh, interpretation. But also it's very practical, because I do believe you and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than any other period of time in history, including the time that Jesus was on the shores of Galilee. And that's a preposterous statement, and yet I challenge you to uh, challenge that statement. You have to, to do so, you have to do two things. You have to find out what the Bible really says about these things. Not what Chuck Missler or whoever, what the Bible says about these things. And the second thing you need to do then, which is a little more difficult, is find out what's going on. And you won't on the 10 o'clock news. Fortunately, thanks to the internet, thanks to the alternative press, thanks to talk radio and other things, it's now possible if you do your homework to find out what really is going on. 
And the more you know about your Bible, and the more you know about what's really going on in the world, the more you will begin to understand why it is so many scholars are extremely excited about the horizon that we're moving into. Because what we're dealing with is the return of Christ to rule. And it's really remarkable how controversial this topic is. You wouldn't think that it would be. But there are over 1,800 references in the Old Testament to return of Christ to rule on the planet Earth. Seventeen books give prominence to the event in the Old Testament. There are over 318 references in the New Testament in 216 chapters. And 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament give prominence to this primary issue, the return of Christ to rule on the planet Earth. You can understand why people might not believe the Bible, might have, take a different view, but it's what's astonishing to me is how many people claim to believe the Bible, claim to be Christian, and have no grasp of the idea that Christ is literally to return to inherit the promises that God gave Israel throughout the Old and New Testament. For every prophecy of Christ's first coming that we all celebrate, for every one of those there are eight, seven or eight anyway, concerning His second coming. So it has far more emphasis in the Scripture than even His first coming, as dominant as that is. Now one of the things that you'll quickly discover is that most churches and many people have a view that we call amillennialism, which is essentially a word meaning they don't really believe in a literal millennium. The idea that Christ is going to return for a thousand years, as is recorded in the Scripture, many people take allegorically. Well, He's going to rule in our hearts, that sort of thing. That view is called amillennialism. And there are many different topics we're going to take on that are very controversial. Different people have different views. This is one that is a little disturbing to embrace, because by embracing this view, in my opinion, you really are making God a liar. You're implying that the commitments that He's emphasized all through the Scripture, He's not going to fulfill. There's an early church father by the name of Oregon who had a theory of interpretation, hermeneutics, that leaned on allegorization. He felt that much of the Bible wasn't to be taken literally, it was just allegories. They're nice stories for teaching purposes. And so he had a theory or an approach that involved allegorizing most of the Scripture. Well, that was his approach. But the unfortunate part was that Augustine, a prominent person in those days, adopted his style, his approach, and he formulated out of that allegorization this view of amillennialism. Now, to understand this view, you need to realize the peculiar predicament that the leaders were in in those days. They were paid by the government. Christianity had become a state religion. And can you picture a government salaried minister at a pulpit pointing out that God is going to come back to free the world from all these evil rulers, and God Himself is going to run things right? That didn't sell well. So in that discomfort, they really adopted a style saying, well, He's not going to come back literally. He's going to rule in our hearts. He's going to rule over us spiritually. And they, they find ways to soften that message. That amillennial viewpoint was the viewpoint of the medieval church, and it gets codified, of course, in the Roman Catholic traditions. 
So Roman Catholic eschatology is, of course, amillennial. Then, of course, we get to the Reformation. Now, the Reformers were primarily occupied with the problems of soteriology, salvation by faith alone. They were burdened by the abuses of the church in the, so many of these other areas. So they did an incredible job at correcting the errors in soteriology. Salvation by faith alone was their watchword. And of course that led to the whole trauma of the Reformation in which millions were burned at the stake willingly for their commitment to that soteriology. The tragedy of the Reformation is that the fathers didn't re-examine the other areas. They maintained the same eschatology that they inherited from the medieval church. And so as a result, most Protestant denominations are also amillennial in their backgrounds, and they're also, they're also post-tribulational in their eschatological view, and I'll explain what that is in a moment. So you need to understand that denominationalism, whether it's Protestant or Catholic, tends to be amillennial. And there, there emerges a conflict with people who want to take the Bible seriously, who believe that God means what He says and says what He means. Amillennialism has some serious problems. Because the Bible is filled with messianic promises throughout the Old Testament that speak of Jesus taking David's throne and ruling the planet Earth. You have to do something with those. Those problems are not limited to the Old Testament. When Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus to Mary, he committed to her that her child was going to sit on the throne of David. The throne of David did not exist in those days. The king in those days was appointed by Rome. He was an Edomite, an enemy of Israel. There was no David's throne. The destiny of Israel in God's covenants for Israel hang on this issue. It's not surprising that if you're amillennial, that also usually leads to anti-Semitism because there's no regard, no understanding of Israel's destiny. And of course the promise given to Mary uh, by the angel Gabriel is obviously a pivot in the New Testament. And there are numerous confirmations of these Old Testament issues in the New Testament. So this is not an Old Testament issue, it's a total Bible issue. In eschatology, one of the first divisions that people get into as they study the Bible, they'll fall into one of two camps. They'll either take this idea of Jesus' rule on the earth as being serious and really going to happen, we would call that pre-millennial, in favor of the millennium. In contrast to those who don't really believe in a literal millennium, they would call themselves amillennial. They would treat those passages allegorically or symbolically. So that's the first division. There is a group between those two that emerged for a while. Those were people that felt the millennium was already started. And that was pretty popular in the 17th, 18th century maybe, but as people began to re realize the world was in big trouble, it was pretty clear to any thinking person that we're obviously not in the millennium. I love the way Chuck Smith would summarize that viewpoint. If we're in the millennium, Satan's chain is too long. <laughs> so, out of amillennialism, there's a form of that that's getting popular again, strangely, called preterism. And the preterists tend to feel that all these prophecies have already been fulfilled in some way in the past. And that too is a very close cousin of amillennialism because it really means you have to allegorize all kinds of passages.
And while it's popular among some leadership that's publicly visible, it is clearly not a biblically rooted point of view. There's also a group of people that are called Reconstructionists, or Kingdom Now, or Dominion Theology. These are people who believe it's the church's job to prepare the world for the return of Christ. And it's the, it's the, it's the job of the church sort of to, to rule, take over the world, and, and get it ready for Christ's return. And that may sound strange, but there are an amazing number of very prominent Christians who, when you really understand their point of view, are really Reconstructionists. Or Kingdom Now, Dominionists, and so forth. Um, Hal Lindsey did an excellent book on this some years ago called The Road to Holocaust, because these views also will be, lead to the destruction or attempted destruction of Israel. Now the point I'm going to try to get through here as we get into this, your hermeneutics, your theory of interpretation will determine where you come out on these issues. If you're among those that take the Bible very seriously, you believe God means what He says and says what He means. If you tend to take it seriously, or I'll say the word literally, I don't like to use the word literally, because when you say that to an adversary, they'll say, well, then you think God has feathers. Because Psalm 91, under his wings thou shalt trust. You know, the, taking it literally is not a denial of figures of speech. Obviously, there's figures of speech in the Scripture. But, in fact, it may shock you to discover how many different kinds of figures of speech are in the Scripture. There are similes, allegories, metaphors, and I could go on and on. Do you know how many different kinds of figures of speech are in the Scripture? Over 200. And they are cataloged with examples in our in appendix to our book on the subject. But when I say literal, I mean these are people that believe that in the original, not the translations, in the originals, they are free of error. That God uh, superintended the Scripture to an astonishing degree. So we, from our point of view, happen to be on the right side of this, this uh, spectrum. There are many good scholars who don't necessarily go as far as we do. There are many competent scholars that are somewhere in the middle here. So I'm not here to disparage them. But uh, if you are willing to allegorize, if you don't take the text that seriously, then there are constructions you can embrace that will take you to the left side of this spectrum. So, where you come out on that will determine your eschatology, in effect. Now, I previously showed you the, the classical divisions of the theology as taught in most seminaries uh, in America. There is a segment of theology that's missing here. There is a segment of theology that is not separated or taught in seminaries, that particular segment of theology constitutes five-sixths of the Bible, and yet is omitted as a specific focus of study. And that's the study of Israelology. Israel as an instrument of God in its plan of redemption. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum got his PhD by highlighting that and demonstrating that, and his book is on Israelology is a classic in the field. The great tragedy of many Christians is they have no grasp of the Old Testament in terms of its foundation for the new, and they have no grasp of Israel's role in the future, not just the past. And so that's one of the things we want to be sensitive to. One of the byproducts of millennialism 
is confusion between the role of Israel and the church. I encourage you, as you study your Bible, is to be sensitive to the possibilities, at least, that Israel and the church are distinctly different. They have different origins. They actually have different missions. And they certainly have different destinies. I think being sensitive to that will clear up a lot of confusion. This idea that Israel has been replaced by the church is what's sometimes called replacement theology. Many, many prominent, publicly high-profile people actually come from a replacement theology point of view. As a result, they do not regard Israel as having any special place in God's future. The problem with that viewpoint is that it makes God a liar, because as you read the Old Testament and the New, God repeatedly hammers away on this issue. In fact, Paul spends three chapters in his definitive statement of Christian gospel called the Book of Romans, hammering away on this very theme. Now, the other aspect of this issue of replacement theology is it lays the basis for anti-Semitism. You can actually write a very competent essay from Augustine to Auschwitz that the amillennialism led to the Holocaust in Germany. If you want to lay the blame for the Holocaust at someone's feet, don't overlook laying it to the feet of the pastors who were silent and did not discourage, in fact encouraged, some of the abuses that led to the uh, Holocaust in, in Germany. Why is this important? Because it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. When we study the 70 weeks in Daniel, I want to remind you that the 70 weeks were specifically addressed to Israel, not the church. And that's a very important distinction that many scholars overlook. If you study Paul's epistles, you'll notice that Paul divides people into three categories. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. And he makes that point several times in his epistles. And it will not always be so, and I'll come back to that when we get further in the Revelation. Because you're going to discover that from chapter 4 on in the book of Revelation, these distinctives between Jews and Gentiles reappear on the horizon. During the church, Paul emphasizes the unity of the body of Christ. But from chapter 4 on, you're going to discover there's an astonishing distinction made between Jews and non-Jews in the, in the book from chapter 4 through 19. And we'll deal with that when we get there. Now the other topic that comes up in eschatology is this whole concept that's called the rapture. You hear people talk about the rapture. And the skeptics will say the word rapture does not appear in the Bible. Yes, it does in the Latin Bible, in the Vulgate. It comes from, the word in the Greek text is the harpazo, which is a word meaning to be snatched up forcibly. When the Greek was translated into Latin, the word is rapturo, and the word rapture is a derivative from, is an English adaptation of the Latin Vulgate. But the word does occur, but if you want to split hairs, the word is harpazo in the Greek. This is unquestionably the most preposterous belief in Christianity. 
the idea that at some time, at the snap of the finger, so to speak, all the true believers in Christ are going to be snatched out of the world bodily, immediately, suddenly. That sounds absolutely zany. That sounds crazy. There's only one thing that this theory has going for it. It happens to be what the Bible teaches. I'm reminded of Richard Feynman at Caltech, and he talks about particle physics. He says that particle physics, as you get into it, is the most ridiculous theory that ever came, has ever come along in the field of physics. The only thing that has got going for it is that it's unquestionably correct. <laughs> and, and that's sort of exactly what you come out with, with this strange view. I think it's appropriate for us to understand how weird this must sound to someone that doesn't have the background in the Scripture. And it's also astonishing to many how clear it is taught in the Scripture. And I'm one of those extremists that even see it taught three different places in the Old Testament, let alone the New, but we won't get to that here. We talked before, we went through this, the, uh, the uh, Christian epistles, we noticed that they were in a pattern, doctrine, reproof, and correction, doctrine, reproof, and correction. We left out and left for this review the second, first and second Thessalonian epistles, because they're doctrinal. See, Romans was doctrinal, but in soteriology. Ephesians was doctrinal, but focusing on ecclesiology, the church. Thessalonians is doctrinal, focusing on eschatology. And I left it to this hour because I wanted to focus on eschatology, because this is where so many of the questions come up, so many, especially new people of the Bible, get confused with all the funny words and what, what on earth is that all about. So that's why we're about it today. The Thessalonian epistles are probably the two earliest of Paul's epistles, dated typically by some scholars in the very early 52-53 A.D. time period. First, and they both are written from Corinth to Thessalonica. The first epistle of Thessalonians deals with our blessed hope. Both these epistles are so important to us, the short little epistles, but they both happen to deal with the key topics of eschatology. The first epistle of the Thessalonians speaks of our blessed hope. Now you need to understand why this letter, it's always when you read these epistles, it's worthwhile trying to understand why Paul was writing the letter. And the background of the first epistle to the Thessalonians was, he was up there, he planted a church, they were all excited, and he taught them about the second coming of Christ and so forth. And after he's gone for a while, he finds that they're all upset because some of them among them have died. And they're confused because they are, apparently they may have felt that uh, Christ's coming was coming so soon it never occurred to them. Some of them, some of their believing congregations passing away. So Paul is dealing with that issue. And in his letter, he first talks about looking back, he talks about their exemplary conversion and how exemplary evangelism they are and how, you know, they're really a turned on church. But now looking ahead, he's giving them information about comfort and he, ex what's interesting about this letter, he's reminding them of things that he, they had already been taught. And it's interesting to realize he'd only been there a few weeks. And this church, he was planted by Paul, he'd been there a few weeks, he leaves now for a year or so, He's writing a letter back reminding them of things he taught them when he was among them. 
So he taught them these issues during the first few weeks of their Christian experience. And so we're going to take a look at that. Where he hits their dilemma head on is in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. And he goes on to explain. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is an event that collectively is called the first resurrection. What he's dealing with here is that the day will come when the dead in Christ will receive new bodies. And we are not, we who might be alive at that time are not going to interfere with that. He says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. They're going to get their bodies first. Then we, which are alive and remain, in other words, we haven't died yet. This is all going on presumably why there's some of us alive, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Strange thing to try to sketch on a drawing board or something. Try to visualize this. There have been all kinds of attempts in Christian movies and stuff to render this, and it's no matter how you do it, it sounds pretty weird. But there is a, what he's saying, there is a generation that's not going to die. But the ones that have died, that are in Christ, will receive new bodies, and we're going to ca- we will too, and we'll be caught up with them in the clouds. This is the, and this is all going to happen, we're going to find out, in the twinkling of an eye. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 